Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm architecture program curator here at the RA. And it's a great pleasure for me and um, for the rest of the team to welcome you all to this second event uh, as part of our Making a Space series, which is organized by uh, the architecture department at the RA in partnership with the doctoral program at the Bartlett School of Architecture at the UCL. This is the second year that we are organizing this series with the Bartlett. In this series, well, we are doing basically bringing together practitioners that are working in the intersection between like architecture, film, music uh, and design to, to critically, uh, in a way, examine uh, how architecture, architecture interactions uh, with uh, other disciplines and how can that provoke and create new, new approaches for design thinking and for exploring the concept of space. And before handing over to Ruth, uh, so she can make a proper introduction to today's event, uh, which will be focused on the concept of time. The previous one was on narrative. Today we're talking about time, this kind of dateless uh, concept uh, related to architecture. I would like to thank the organizers, uh, Ruth Bernatek, uh, Emma K. Matthews, uh, Sander Holzgens, and Mergin Rogers from the Bartlett, and also to Helen Ikla and Ian Grierson from the Royal Academy. I would also like to, to thank Turkey Ceramics and the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture for making possible the architecture program at the Royal Academy. And now, without further ado, uh, please give a warm welcome to Ruth Bernatek. Um, good evening everyone and may I just extend a very warm welcome to all of you from the Bartlett School of Architecture um, too. May I first also just acknowledge our gratitude to the Royal Academy of Arts, especially to Kate Goodwin and Gonzalo Herrera Delicado and also Helen Ickler, who have all done an, an enormous amount of work behind the scenes um, to help us bring these events together. Um, and from the Bartlett, Dr. Penelope Haralambadu, um, who's always there with support when you need it. Before introducing our first speaker, I just wanted to talk really very briefly about some of the themes and ideas that have uh, brought us together tonight, but that also will frame um, this evening's discussions. So time is rather a tricky concept and there's no easy definition. But time, Joan Didion writes, uh, passes, but not as aggressively as anyone notices. And tonight what we're hoping to do is to make time noticeable, making it palpable, audible and visible by drawing upon the relationships between sound and architecture and the spaces that we occupy. Um, and specifically, we wanted to bring together a really diverse group of practitioners, sound artists, architects, art historians, filmmakers, composers, um, who we might say introduce a durational element to architecture through their work, and whose work also uh, sort of um, shapes the way that we experience space through time by making time somehow noticeable, a way to notice its passing. Whether it's through an encounter that undoes time, like that in Fairy Tale Almost Blue by Carol Maver, or the sonic negotiation of spatial limits and the bodily experience of Vex, a unique project, a unique building project, uh, which has been born out of a, a really interesting collaboration between the sound artist Scanner and the architects uh, Wendy De Silva and Steve Chance of Chance and De Silva Architects. 
Um, and in both of these projects, which we're going to be discussing tonight, um, though very, very different, I think there are real points of connection. Um, and there are common threads, such as echo and repetition and doubling and chance happenings, things that you're not quite expecting. And I think also temporal playfulness, I think would be fair to say as well. And hopefully throughout the course of the evening, these will be identified and we can really explore them together and, and come together at the end with the questions to sort of push that a little bit further as well. Um, I think there is perhaps still sort of a lingering tendency to think about time as something which is very closely connected to, but ultimately separated from the production of space. And I think, uh, for example, in traditional architectural drawing, where we see a plan and a section and an elevation, they are sort of discrete yet simultaneously observed. And it lends to architecture this sense of stasis. I would say. And I think that the static condition of buildings and building materials such as concrete and stone and steel sort of reinforce this notion of architecture as something which is incredibly static and somehow frozen in time. So this evening, what I hope that we're going to start to unpack and together sort of start to address is how time and time-based media might be something, we have some potential for architecture and the production of space uh, that we, we haven't yet sort of really got to grips with. Um, sorry, one second. <laughs> uh, so, and I should also say it's not sort of just the production of of architecture, the production of space, but I think it's also something to do with place as well. Something which is maybe a little bit harder to define, but time in relation to place and the places that we remember and the places that we inhabit and the places that we want to go in the future. So we very much hope that the discussions that we spark here now um, will be also sort of taken through into the library after the keynote presentations here in the main in the main theatre because we have a very sort of exciting programme from Bartlett PhD students also. Um, in particular, there's going to be a, a musical work presented by Emma Kate Matthews, who is an architect and a composer and just so happens to be doing a PhD at the same time. And uh, she's going to be uh, presenting her new work, which is called Device 2 Tracing. And this will be performed by Audrey Wozniak and um, Malachi Siner Chaverst on the cello and the violin. And this will be a live performance taking place in the library on the balcony at about 20 to 9. So please make sure that you stay to hear that. And in the same exact space, you'll also see three CRT monitors. Um, and on these monitors are films by Sander Holzgund, another one of the organisers for uh, tonight. And he's displaying a response to Carol Maver's work on the colour blue and its intimate outlines. And his film suggests that blue and blue surfaces do a certain violence to the eye, if only for a split second. So I sincerely hope that that's whetted your appetite. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce you all to our first speaker, Carol Maver. Carol Maver is a writer who takes creative risks in form, both literary and experimental, and political risks in content, confronting sexuality, racial hatred, child loving, and the maternal. She shares this provocative approach with her students as a professor of art history and visual studies at the University of Manchester. 
Maeve is the author of six books, Becoming the Photographs of Clementina by Countess Hawarden, Pleasures Taken, Performances of Sexuality and Loss in Victorian Photographs, Black and Blue, The Bruising Passion of Camera Lucida, La Jetée, Sans Soleil, and Hiroshima Mon Amour. Mavis' 2013 Blue Mythologies, A Study of the Colour, coaxes us into having a less complacent attitude, even when it comes to something as apparently innocuous as colour. And her reading boyishly by Roland Barthes, uh, sorry, her reading Boyishly was named by Turner Prize winner Grayson Perry in The Guardian as his 2008 Book of the Year, which is always a good recommendation. Her most recent monograph is Aurelia, Art and Literature Through the Eyes, of the Ma Eyes and Mouth of the Fairy Tale. And as fellow author Maggie Nelson has written, forget whatever you previously associated with fairy tales and enter Carol Maver's kaleidoscopic universe of art and literature. Everyone from Ralph, Ralph Eugene Metiard to Kiki Smith to Frank Baum to Emmett Till to Francesca Woodman to Langston Hughes is here and so many more, held together by Maver's casually erudite, finely spun web. Aurelia is a strange, enigmatic and full of, full of magic as it is its subjects. Maver has lectured broadly in the US and the UK and from 2000 to 2011 she was the Northrop Fry Chair in Literary Theory at the University of Toronto and her poetry, fiction and essays have appeared in numerous publications and magazines. So please join me in welcoming Carol. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a fabulous event and I'm honored to be here. And I'm first up and I'm going to show you a film. It's, not, it's more of a collage of images. I really wouldn't call it a film. It'll be about 12 minutes long and it's about the color blue. And I'll say a few words about that. And then I really want to talk about the color gray and its relationship to time. So I'm going to sit down and the movie is going to play now. The monks say, below the virgin's blue bower cape sky, as they struggle to open their ears to Mary's chromotherapeutic sound of many waters. Oh, listen to blue, the color made up of the light that got lost. Is it no wonder that Rambo's synesthetic ear heard the letter O as blue? Listen to light's timbre, it is blue. Here, this fairy tale blue. Once upon a time, there was born a girl named Celeste, whose heavenly name could not be more blue. She was born in the Lake District, where the lakes are like blue eyes staring back at the blue sky. Like all babies, she was born with eyes that appeared blue. As followers of Goethe know, the blue sky, the blue sea, the blue lake, and our baby's blue eyes are blue, not because they are pigmented, but because they scatter blue light to us. Once the pigment of the child's eyes arrives, the irises are effectively painted. Their color is now determined not by scattered light, but by the pigment's absorption properties. Celeste's eyes started out blue and grew to be feverishly painted blue, 
Looking into Celeste's eyes was like walking into Giotto's arena chapel. One was struck by the blue. Like Narcissus looking at his own reflection, the blue of Celeste's eyes became the soul of her world. Just as some people become connoisseurs of wine, Celeste became a philosopher of blue. Celeste particularly loved the virgin's blue cloak. Celeste was obsessed with Mary as a sign of blued abjection. Her writings metamorphosized the virgin as a sea flower, an aster embellished with a turquoise blue eye, a sea anemone who opened its corolla to not only swallow and entomb Christ, but also to release the anemone of Mary Magdalene. Like a spellbound Thomas with his finger in the wound of Christ, Celeste longed to direct her finger into the center of Mary as a blue sea anemone. Celeste achieved minor fame for her short treatise entitled, Blue is the Color of Abduction. Usually Celeste summered in the lakes where she spent the stretched out summer days riding in blue. But one year, Celeste felt different. She had an urge to escape, to float away from her habit. Very well then, said Celeste to herself, she would travel. Not all that far, not where the leopards are. While looking at her maps and timetables, Celeste glanced out the lattice window of her sitting room and was taken by a black spider, beginning his fair home to be founded in an hour, a manse of Mechlin and a floss. The long blue evening light of English summer was keeping its hold. She thought, where do you go when you want to travel to really get away, but not? The answer was, of course, Venice, half fairy tale and half tourist trap. Venice, a place made of 130 islands, is neither land nor water. It is a utopian, no place, that leaks the hope of not yet. Venice is a womb-like place to inhabit when one is no longer or not yet oneself. Gently swaying, the waves of Venice beat with a quiet, regular heartbeat. Like an infant not yet born, when your Vaporetto pulls into the San Marco stop, it is as if one had arrived and yet not arrived. To arrive in Venice is intransitive. She booked a room on Lido Island at the Hotel de Bain. She took room 422. While Celeste was breakfasting at the Hotel de Bain and dreamily thinking about some sweet narrow plums that she had eaten in Italy many summers ago, known as nun's thighs, the child came down to breakfast. With astonishment, she notices that this girl is entirely beautiful. She is made of the creamy luster of marble. She is boyish Eros. From a distance, Celeste did not yet see the girl's beautiful thin blue veins, which grew from her slender white neck and clung around her tender cheeks and gentle curves. This girl was a translucent white poppy, pumping the blue blood of a swan. Celeste wanted to be her Leda. Celeste looks at the girl 
and here is blue. It sends her soaring in blue. The girl's name is Adagio. She is no more than 14 years old, maybe less, frail and lovely. She is not yet fully blue. She is not yet a morning glory. Celeste's interest in Adagio speedily develops into mania. She watches Adagio constantly and secretly follows her around Venice. One evening, the girl directs a charming boyish smile at her, looking like Narcissus smiling at his own reflection. Undone, Celeste rushes outside and into the hotel's empty garden. Frantically inhaling the nightly fragrance of the flora mixed with the sultry smell of Venice, Celeste whispers aloud, I love you. Every morning, Celeste waits for Adagio to come join her brothers and parents for breakfast in the hotel's grand dining room. Adagio is often very late. One morning, Adagio practically misses breakfast altogether. She is a little fiation. She comes in with her slight figure, wearing a blue and white striped linen dress, her eyes half closed, her lips full, her body still warm with bedclothes. Her head is like a blue iris in bloom. Oh, my little liabed, Celeste whispers to herself. One day, Celeste goes so far as to follow Adagio and her family in a gondola. At one point, their gondolas come into sight of one another. Adagio's twilight gray-blue eyes, the exact color of the canal on that particular morning, meet the cerulean blue eyes of Celeste. Celeste melts. Nothing stronger more delicate than the relationship between people who know each other only by sight. Celeste begins to make obsessive pictures about her lambkin, whose dreams were little tinkling bells. Absorbed at a photocopy shop, deep in the maze of Venice, Celeste invents reflections in a pool of love, like the pond in which Narcissus saw himself. By using an actual glass, the reproductive reflector of the photocopier. She continues to follow this girl like a collector after a butterfly. In the words of Goethe, we love to contemplate blue, not because it advances to us, but because it draws us after it. <laughs> Celeste has butterflies in her stomach. Every day, Celeste would find a place on the sand and wait for Adagio. She loves to hear this girl's name called out by her newfound friends and brothers with a long and extended O on the end of her name as if it were the start of a fairy tale of the O of once upon a time. They would cry out her name, Adagio, Adagio, and she would come running to show them what she had caught, jellyfish, little seahorses, and mussels, and crabs that go sideways. Her name was music to Celeste's ears, but Adagio's laugh was disconcerting. Adagio's laugh was like Rabelais' earthly laugh that gutted her beauty with the grotesque carnivalesque.
The weather has been holding in as gray and warm and soupy. The stagnant air is putrid, sulfuric. It has been this way for over a week. A sense of contagion is in the blue. Few people in Venice are left. They began to flee as the odor began to permeate and grow. The atmosphere holds olfactions from today and days past. It slowly snakes its way in and out of houses, shops, and hot food stalls. Invisible but thickly felt, the cloudy eel, made not of water or aquatic vertebrate, but of the reek of oil, the smell of old perfume, the stench of stale cigarettes, and the pong of rotting seafood. This elongating fish of smells only grows upon itself. The serpent cloud never disperses. The sea is no longer alive with children waiting. There are no little boats painted red and blue. There are no complicated sandcastles. There are no vendors of mussels, cakes, and fruits. Nevertheless, at breakfast, the food was bountiful. Celeste has breakfasted on blueberry cakes and finally some of those sweet narrow plums known as nun's thighs. Excellent Adagio is still here. She is here on the beach. She has had a bit of a fight with her brothers. She is sulking in the sultry air. The sky is still gray, but the sea is a quivering blue of ether. Turning her back on her two brothers and the few who are on the beach today, Adagio walks dreamily towards the sea. At the edge of the sea, she lingers. She continues. She reaches the sandbar. She stands there for a moment, looking out into the distance. And suddenly, as if prompted by a memory, by an impulse, she turns at the waist, one hand on her boyish hips, and then, with an enchanting twist of the body, she looks back over her shoulder at the beach. For a second time, those twilight gray eyes meet those of Celeste. What happened after that is impossible to say. Somehow, Celeste finds herself going underwater. Going into the water feels a bit like going into a mouth, like being swallowed into a giant blue O. This underwater world is Pompeii, made of precious lapis lazuli. Celeste breathes the Venetian water like an infant in the womb. Before I was bounded, now I've begun to leak, sings Celeste, her mouth full of water. Underwater, she cruises the canals amidst the sound of the plashing of the oar, the dull slap of the wave against the prow of a gondola. She knows the driver is wearing blue seaman's clothes with a yellow scarf around his waist, but she cannot see this man in Werther's sartorial colors of courtly love. She's lost. She's looking for her adagio, her lost lamb. She makes her way further out to sea. Unleashed in Celeste is a desire for a cutting and catching and sewing of things. Like Venice above, 
This underwater world couples splendor with rank. Celeste cannot find her lamb. She finds a ray. She digs her hand into the ray and it smiles and it smells. And she says, you are not my lamb. The ray was unconcerned, but not indifferent. She cannot find her lamb. She finds a goose. The goose digs a webbed foot into Celeste's belly and it smiles. Celeste as Leda, with her head wrapped in death shard, says, you are not my lamb. The goose was unconcerned, but not indifferent. She opens her hand and it spills out maggots like water bubbles under the sea. The maggots are smileless. They are unconcerned, but not indifferent. She cannot find her lamb. She finds white furry rabbits. They try to seduce her with their own white fur, but it is not the wooliness of her lamb. She closes her eyes and strangles one and says, you are not my lamb. The rabbit quickly became unconcerned, but not indifferent. She calls for her lamb. Like whether she calls Charlotte, she calls Lutchen, she calls Lottie. Only the anchovies come. They crawl up between her legs in the lacy fishnets she wears in anticipation of her married supper of the lamb. She clenches her teeth in proud shame. She arches her back in proud shame, her bobby-socked feet reaching for her nose. As fish hooks, a straight razor, and an ax pass through her body, she calmly <coughs> somersaults into a kiss. She is gagging with pleasure. She is bursting out of the basket, and fruit is bursting out of her. She is blue inside and out. In the pre-adolescent 12-minute fairy tale, Still Almost Blue, the adult Celeste, in the gray twilight of her life, drifts about in the Viennese-inflicted cinema of cobalt, navy, sapphire, cerulean, indigo, mostly still, still blue images which sink and float the gondola of the imagination. My voice is Celeste, blue through and through, who bobs about for an adolescent girl with the pitch-perfect name of Adagio. It's an all-female fairy tale version of Thomas Mann's dark novella, Death in Venice, a gentian trying to bloom between two gray stones, a not yet of what would become my book, Reflection, Blue Mythologies, Reflections on a Color. A cine essay, a cine poem, a cine sketch. A sketch is unpretentious, a rough draft of a more finished painting that is yet to come. A record of a movement towards something better. A sketch is utopian. Etymologically, utopia is a no place, and out of time makes space. U equals no, topos equals place. In 1516, Thomas More turned utopia into a proper noun, an island to sail towards. Likewise, the German philosopher Ernst Bloch 
envisioned utopia as an unapologetic, unblushing movement towards something better, the not yet conscious or the not yet become. Sketch comes from an ancient Greek word meaning extemporaneous poem, suggesting spontaneity and the unfixed. A sketch can be erased, redrawn, thrown away. Inaccurate, it allows freedom of thought. Ideas can be tried out quickly. Free love, Polaroid. Utopia and sketch are building sites destined for success or failure. It's all in the blueprint, the gray lead of the plan. Fairy tale, still almost blue, is not yet developed. It's an adolescent thing. Set in Venice, which is neither water nor land, Celeste follows her adagio like Mon, Thomas Mann's Ossenbach after Tadzio, like Hitchcock's Scotty after Madeline. It's a pursuit of time, or more accurately, Uchronia, through the figure of love, like Marcel after watery Albertine, and Marcel Proust in search of lost time. Like Proust's Madeline cake, itself taking the shape from the ocean's scallop shell, the emblem of wandering pilgrims dedicated to Saint-Jacques. Fairy tale still almost blue, turns on the serendipitous chance encounter which undoes time. In the words of Marcel Proust's search, the narrator tells us this about the famed Madeleine cake. One day in winter as I came home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, offered me some tea, a thing I did not ordinarily, not ordinarily take. I declined at first and then, for no particular reason, changed my mind. She sent out for one of those short, plump little cakes called Petite Madeleine, which look as though they had been molded in the fluted <coughs> scallop of a pilgrim shell. And soon, mechanically, weary after a dull day with the prospect of a despairing morrow, I raised my lips to a spoonful of tea. I raised to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate than a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped intent upon the extraordinary thing that was taking place. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, but individual, but individual detached with no suggestions of its origin. And at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous its brevity, illusory. This new sensation, having had on me the effect which love has, of filling me with a precious essence, or rather this essence was not in me, it was myself. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. The narrator of In Search of the Lost, of Lost Time at first declined the Madeline cake, then accepts it, a happy accident. Upon <coughs> tasting it, he experiences involuntary memory. Time is profoundly undone, making space for his novel about writing a novel. This is not calendar time. This is not clock time. This is out of time. The word serendipity, coined in 1754 by the collector and Gothic novelist Horace Walpole, 
means the capacity of making unexpected discoveries by accident. Walpole formed the word upon a Persian-Italian fairy tale entitled The Three Princes of Serendip, in which the heroes are always making discoveries by accident of things that they were not in quest of. In fairy tales still almost blue, serendipity is wet and very blue, a blue made more poignant by gray. Turning her back on her two brothers and the few who are on the beach, Adonjil walks dreamily towards the sea. At the edge of the sea, she lingers, she continues, she reaches the sandbar. She stands there for a moment, looking out into the distance, and suddenly, as if prompted by a memory, by an impulse, she turns at the waist, one hand on her boyish hips, and then, with an enchanting twist of the body, she looks back over her shoulder at the beach. For a second time, those twilight gray eyes meet those of Celeste. Blue can effortlessly become gray. In northern England, where I live, the sky prefers gray and is at home as gray. The same can be said for the Atlantic's desire for gray. I grew up in California, and my Pacific, and my sky, was blue. Blue and gray foster each other like the Pacific and the Atlantic. Vermeer's blues look so richly blue because they are next to gray. Vermeer's grays, less acknowledged but perhaps no less beautiful, look so richly gray because they are next to blue. Rebecca Solnit writes, blue is the color of longing for the distance you never arrive in, for the blue world. But gray, I want to say, is not the color of longing. It is the color of time. With my tongue dipped in Chris Marker's Cinepoem La Jetée, a film without color, a collage of mostly still photographs printed on the grayscale, gray is the color of time unbuilt, without <coughs> memories, without plans, no calendars, save for the rings of an ancient redwood tree. They are without memories, without plans. Time builds itself painlessly around them. Perhaps that is why Gray is the color of old age, of our twilight time. Memories turn gray, foggy, perhaps forgotten altogether. What are the riches of gray? What is gray? Gray as the color of ash, lead, flint, and overcast sky is an intermediate between black and white. As a mixture of black and white with another color, often blue, or brown, gray barely has a positive hue. Although often big as an elephant, as expansive as the sky, gray is mousy. Gray is the moon, elephants, the sky in northern England, the gray whale, most pigeons, a dove. A goose can be gray and so can a swan and a pearl. San Francisco fog is especially gray when it hovers over the very orange Golden Gate Bridge. Gray is dust, cement, stone, wool, a battleship, everyone's hair eventually, save for Marcel Proust, who claimed his hair did not turn gray. The zone system of black and white photography, ashes, steel, a complexion that is not well, a name as an Effie Gray who married the painter Millet, the unknown, the undecided, middleness, middle age, old age, 
some of the squares and Joseph Albert's series of paintings homage to the square. There's one particular homage to the square by Albers that I like to daydream about. Squares of field yellow, morning sun yellow, and butter yellow. And in the center is fog gray. Yellow goes good with gray. Gray can be a rabbit, a dog, a fox, and a shark. Gray is a roly-poly pill bug, pencil lead, castles, a wolf, a wolf dog. Inconstancy is a gray vice in Giotto's arena chapel with sigh. Whistler gives us harmony in gray and green. I love the gray of the elephant hide gray fiberglass reinforced plastic 1951 Eames rocking chair in RAR with metal legs and birch runners. Gray time makes a space felt, Joseph Boys. Stonehenge is timeless space, and Stonewall is a moment in time. In the Aran Islands of Ireland, stone walls make lace of the landscape. In Emerson's Gathering of Water Lilies, as if in a fairy tale still gray, a gray woman in a gray hat picks gray water lilies out of the water, like photographs being pulled out of the fixing bath. Amongst the rushes of gray, <coughs> as a gray man rows a gray boat, the lilies will be used in the large gray bonnet as bait for catching the fish, which remain unseen under the gray water. But there is no fairy tale still almost gray. Blue is the hue of happiness and the little mermaid's ocean that is as blue as the prettiest cornflower. Red is the color of rupture and the blood of pricked fingers and Snow White's red lips. But gray is not a motivating color of the fairy tale. True, there's the gray old man in Grimm's The Golden Goose, and there's the gray wolf who takes the youngest brother for spectacular rides in the Russian magic tale Ivan Zarovich, the firebird, and the gray wolf. But gray is mostly too undecided to be a sure symbol, save for aging. Gray is not directed. Gray tends towards expansion, like an elephant's hide, like a skyscraper's height, like a blanket of dust, like the magnitude of the moon. Of course, gray can be small, as in Julio Cortazar's description of a gray roly-poly bug in his story, Bestiary. But even here, it expands with the smell of age. And I quote from the story. The country bathroom smelled old. She found a water bud taking a walk in the wash basin. She barely touched it. It rolled itself into a timid ball and disappeared down the gurgling drain. We feel relief in the story and in lived life when the gray pill bug makes itself into a tiny moon and disappears down the drain. The gray moon is gigantic gray, cocked rock, paper, scissors stone, which looks down on the little blue marble earth. If the earth were hollow, about 50 moons would fit inside. Yet the moon is light, oh, lighter than moon, and weighs about 80 times less than earth. From the blue earth, we have always gazed at the stone moon. William Blake dreamed of reaching the moon by ladder, she arcs for him like a listening ear in the night sky sprayed with stars. In The Daughters of the Moon, a story by Italo Calvino, um, the author dreams of an old gray moon who has grown too old. The story takes place in the future time, not unlike our time where cars wear out more quickly than the soles of shoes. The people on earth are tired of the moon's tired ways and want to pull her down. 
as he writes in the story, she wandered through the sky, the moon naked, corroded, and gray, more and more alien to the world down here, a hangover from a way of being that was now outdated. Ancient expressions like full moon, half moon, last quarter moon continued to be used, but were only figures of speech. How could we call a full a shape that was all crack and holes and that was always seemed on the point of crashing down on our head in a shower of rubble? At each new moon, we wondered whether it would ever appear again. Were we hoping that it would simply disappear? And when it did appear, looking more and more like a comb that had lost its teeth, we averted our eyes with a shudder. It was a depressing sight. What color is time? Why do I want to say it's gray? I do not mean calendar or clock time. I mean that other time, la time, time without memories, without plans, when time builds itself painlessly around me, around me like an arcing gray moon. Long ago, when we lived in a tiny cold cottage that we could not afford, let alone afford to heat, long ago when we lived above our blue ocean, our Pacific, Upon waking, upon waking every winter morning in that tiny cold cottage, clouds of gray breath bloomed from our mouths. Gray flowers, dandelion puffs, breath clouds, gray. Proof that we are alive. Many thanks, Carol, for such a stimulating and really incredible intellectual, artistic sort of journey. Um, I, for one, have plenty of questions. Um, and those of you in the audience who also have thoughts and questions for Carol, if, um, if you could just keep hold of them to the end and we'll sort of discuss together with, with both speakers. So I'd like to introduce you to our next uh, speakers tonight, um, Scanner and Steve Chance. Scanner is a composer and a sound artist, and Steve Chance is an architect who I met just about a year ago now, actually at another event here at the Royal Academy. Um, the first one that we had the pleasure of doing um, as a team from the Bartlett with Kate and Gonzalo and Helen, um, which was called Sound Making Space. And after that event, Steve and I got chatting in the library afterwards, and we fell onto the topic of uh, somebody, a figure called Yanis uh, Zanakis, who some of you might be familiar with, and where we found some common ground. And we started talking about Zanakis, who, if, if you're familiar with sort of issues of sound and space, you'll sort of know of his work. Um, for those of you who aren't so familiar, he was uh, an engineer trained in Greece who later worked professionally in Paris uh, with the architect Le Corbusier. And, uh, after this sort of early career, he actually became one of the most significant composers of the 20th century in France, um, and really a very key uh, figure of the avant-garde. And one of the works that he's most sort of known for, really, is, is quite an early piece from the 50s, uh, which is called the Philips Pavilion. And on this project, he was really uh, collaborating more as an architect than he was as a composer. Um, and he designed a structure for the French-American composer Edgar Varese to present his uh, 
very experimental piece called the Poem Electronique. And there was also a film element um, to this installation, and it took place at the Brussels World Fair. And the, the structure was a temporary structure, and inside this structure, uh, once you had walked in, uh, you would listen to Varese's music and see the films of Le Cabizier projected onto the walls, these curved walls, and we'll see some images of it later. Um, and the music was played through over 300 speakers, which were actually embedded in the curved walls of the pavilion building. And the reason this has become such an iconic building is that actually it's incredibly rare for composers and architects to collaborate in this way so early on in a design phase. And in fact, when I was thinking about uh, Zanakis and how he's maybe influenced sort of the <coughs> field of sound and space research, I started to think about what other architects and composers had worked together. And I really couldn't think of that many. And then Steve told me about this amazing project that he'd been working on with Scanner. And this started, I think, in 2014? 14? Earlier? <laughs> way back. Way back. It, start, it started way back. It started way back. Um, and they came together uh, to produce a piece of architecture. But it's something that I really want to point out was that when they came together to collaborate on this work, um, there was no building. When we think of sound installations and sound works and soundscapes, usually we are... Uh, injecting some sound into an already existing space. This was something slightly different. This was an architect and a composer coming together to design something from the very beginning together in tandem um, with this very close relationship, very much like Zanakis and Varese had done almost 50 years earlier. Um, but something else that's very unusual about VEX, the unique building project that Scanner and Steve are going to talk about in just a moment, is that it's designed as a permanent piece of architecture. Now, in the sort of the history of architects and composers working together, this is also extremely rare. They're nearly always for very temporary buildings or very temporary shells. So to have a, a building which has been designed to stay permanently there with a permanent sound work installed is really very unique. And I think a really interesting uh, sort of concept when we start to think about time and space and how uh, Scanner's work brings a new durational dimension to the architecture, which is going to be there uh, for whoever inhabits it for the rest of its sort of life. So I just find that really, really exciting. Um, I know that we're going to hear a little bit more about Steve and Scanner's background from them in their talk, but just very, very briefly, um, Steve founded Chance to Silver Architects with Wendy, his partner. Um, I can't remember now when. Several years ago. Uh, <laughs> but something that's interesting about the way that Wendy and Steve work is that whilst they do sort of, you know, sort of your normal, let's say, more straight architecture, they also have this passion for working collaboratively with artists and with sound artists and dancers and choreographers and filmmakers and they're extremely dedicated to opening up architecture to other art forms and I think that's really um, amazing and Scanner for those of you who are familiar with the sort of the sound world well you'll all know who he is but Scanner has been working in the sort of sound music sound art industry for the last two decades um, and when St Steve and Scanner came to do a talk for us not too long ago at the Bartlett um, I became quite obsessed with a piece that I think he's going to talk about a little bit later called Celle de Depart, um, which is uh, 
very special space um, with a particular sound and for a very particular purpose, which I know that he's going to talk about later. And this, for me, became a really actually quite a poignant thing. It made me think a lot about personal experiences that I had had. I'm absolutely delighted that you're going to hear a little bit more from Steve and Scanner this evening. Um, and, yep, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. So I'm Steve, and this is Robin. Also Good evening. Robin Rambo, also known as Scanner. And as Ruth says, we're going to talk about sound and architecture and about space and about time. And uh, we're going to base uh, a substantial part of our talk about the collaboration on this, ah, on this building, VEX, which is an in-situ concrete house, uh, fluted or corrugated concrete house in Stoke Newington with an integral sound piece by Scanner. Uh, Baudelaire, one of Baudelaire's ideas about modernism was that um, it was about the capturing the fleeting moment, the, the sense of, of the ephemeral in urban life. And one of his thoughts was that the role of art was to try and capture that fleeting nature. Um, and being aware simultaneously of, of being in the present moment as we are now while being aware of the past leading up to it and, and the future going forward, um, the idea that art could heighten the sensitivity to this kind of, um, of this kind of experience. I don't know whether, we, do we have any symbolist poets in the house tonight? <laughs> well, fortunately we do have Rambo, so um, I was just going to mention that um, this idea of capturing the ephemeral, one way of doing that is in a CD, but at one stage Robin and I had a conversation, and I think I can quote him on saying that, you know, the thing that is important to you, Robin, is the, the moment, the, the, the lived experience of, of, for example, a sound performance taking place uh, once only, you know, a unique experience. While it's very exciting to us that a CD was going to be made of Robin's music for Vex, he took a slightly different uh, view on it. Um, music and architecture, potentially quite odd bedfellows in the sense that architecture, uh, or at least buildings are regarded as, as static, and music, um, generally speaking, historically, has had duration. In other words, a start and a finish and music taking place over a period of, of time. Um, some composers historically have tried to escape the tyranny of duration by making pieces which um, at least conceptually could be regarded as endless or eternal. And one of these is uh, Vexations by... Should we, should we play it? Should we yeah, just we, we play, we play it? it to Maybe you? Maybe you could tell yeah. us a bit about it, Robert. It's a curious piece because I, I read before that uh, those that have played it say you can never remember it. <laughs> so I think it's, to me, I, f I find it a, a fantastic idea to make a piece of music that someone can't actually remember. 
It was hardly ever played. Uh, if you know about Eric Satie's work, he was a very playful character. He had two pianos in his little apartment, and one of them was filled with letters. He kept umbrellas, which he apparently collected all his life, and put them underneath the bed. He wore the same kind of grey felt suit, a grey suit, uh, all his life. A very, very eccentric character, but quite fascinating. He wrote this piece in 1893, and allegedly you had to play it 840 times. It's a very small piece of music, and it just repeats. There's a story that when it was uh, first performed, it was really first performed by John Cage and a whole group of people. It took over 18 hours to perform, which is around the time it takes to perform. Uh, it cost $5 to get in. And for every iteration you stayed, you got five cents back. <laughs> so uh, it's quite a clever idea in terms of uh, performance, I think, something I might... <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't make a profit, though. Not really, no. But uh, and apparently the, the story is that people have gone slightly mad who've performed it. And the great thing is when they, on the rare occasions they do perform it, some poor person has to stand there and mark down how many times it's been performed, often on a chalkboard. So you can imagine after the 700th time in the theatre... Quite a challenge. Uh, interestingly, also, uh, I discovered that uh, Sati was one of the first people to create an idea of the pre uh, prepared piano. Thank you. Which is something that John Cage uh, was very famous for, in that you take an instrument, like the piano that we're very familiar with, and you put nuts and bolts in it and all kinds of things that actually alter the sound of it. And uh, he used paper and put it into the... Uh, into the, uh, into the piano itself, which actually leads on to Duchamp, which is quite interesting, because Duchamp made a piece called A Musical Erratum, and it's a very open-ended piece. Do we have... This is it here? Yeah, yeah. Was, I was just going to briefly mention their furniture music, which, yeah, true. which Sarty also made, um, the idea that it just was to be played in the background, uh, an additional texture, for example, to an architectural space, which we might these days think of as related to music. Which is funny because when it was premiered, uh, he got very upset that people stopped to listen to it because you were meant to ignore it, which is quite fascinating because in a sense, it, it predates what lots of people call ambient music that characters like uh, the musician Brian Eno has certainly been celebrated for his contributions to ambient music. But in fact, this was some of the earliest occasions of making work that you don't want anybody to take notice of. An idea that always fascinated me, again, something, you create something, but you don't want people to pay attention to it, which is quite appealing. So Duchamp created this piece called Musical Erratum, and it's a very open-ended work. I've got about four different versions. I'm going to play you one of them now, which is was created on the prepared piano. I've got a vocal piece. I have a solo piano piece. And what's interesting, each note on the keyboard can be played once only, so, in a, in a sense, it, it, it bears a relationship to the Sati because you can never remember it. So, let's hear a Duchamp. And interestingly, this draws on a, a random choice of notes. So, it, it's ever-changing in a way. Quite nice to have that because the Dali Duchamp show is still on here at the Royal Academy. But the idea of time within this is, is kind of lost in some sense. The same with the Sati. If you're an, uh, an audience member trying to work out 
Do you really sit there and count the iterations of it or not? You are kind of lost within the work. So the frame reference of start and finish completely disappear. Uh, another approach to this was Francis Picabia, who wrote a, a piece called Le Norice American, The American Nurse, which is more like a, a provocation. It's uh, three notes that are repeated endlessly. I think this one you know where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ruth mentioned in her introduction this building, the Phillips Pavilion. <clears throat> by, so this is a building that was designed by a composer under the auspices of an architect, his boss. And the architect was interested, Le Corbusier that is, was interested in inviting uh, a composer uh, Edgar Varez to compose works for it. In fact, Zinakis uh, also made a composition for the, for the piece. Um, and it's something which, at the very early stages of, of discussing, Robin and I, something that we were both aware of, um, to some extent as a precursor to the idea of collaborating on a building design and a musical composition where neither existed. And um, it, Ruth's touched upon this already, but Xenakis was somebody who took ideas from architecture and engineering. Uh, for example, um, Le Corbusier's proportioning system, the modular, and applied those in musical composition. And he also took um, ideas that he developed in musical composition, such as patterns of rhythmic density, and applied those to architecture, uh, perhaps most famously in the windows of La Tourette, uh, Le Corbusier's building monastery, La Tourette. And uh, Le Corbusier had his own ideas about music, the relationship between music and architecture. And, and I'll read this. He said, architecture is not a synchronic phenomenon, but a successive one, made up of pictures adding themselves one to another, following each other in time and space, like music. And I think we're going to hear are we going to hear a bit of the poem electronique? We can't hear. Tender for the Christmas number one, I, I heard. So, yeah. <laughs> we all buy a copy in time. Um, so one of the things that we discussed at the outset was how do we collaborate? What's the nature of collaboration itself? Why do you collaborate? And what's great from our point of view was when we pitched the idea to Robin at the beginning of this collaboration, he basically said, great. <laughs> I love collaborating and, and you know we said well why is that and he said well I don't know where the hell we're going with this and that's what's so exciting about it. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point which is uh, th there's a model one can follow essentially in various art forms in, in terms of creativity whether you're a, a musician or a writer, a painter, you, you follow a certain pattern, you make certain bodies of work be it a record, a painting, a sculpture you have a showing of it or you release a record or a CD or you show your photographs or your book is published. You promote it and hope that people buy this product. And it reflects what Steve said earlier. It's, it's, it's the very idea I find least interesting, no disrespect to 
75 albums or so that I seem to have released <laughs> over my career and two, in fact, this month. I don't stop. But I, I see them more as postcards. They essentially say, Mr. Scanner is still alive. He's still doing things. But an idea of collaboration is much more appealing. It, it pushes me in a very collaborative way. I grew up with these, these characters, Cage and Cunningham. I feel very honoured. I worked with Cunningham on a piece in London. Interestingly, uh, a small aside, which I thought, I just remembered it earlier. I worked with Cunningham on a two shows at the Barbican in London and with John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, the bass player. And the very next night, I went out to his Anarxist concert at the Southbank Centre <laughs> and uh, John Paul Jones was there with his mum. And I thought it was so fantastic to impress my friends that one day I'm working with the bassist from Led Zeppelin, the next day I spend the evening with his mum. <laughs> that's, that's truly rock and roll. But the idea of collaboration is, is really uh, is, is something very important to me. And these two characters, if you're familiar with their work, it was a lifelong collaboration, both living together as partners, but their body of work was really fascinating, particularly an idea that they have two art forms, one being choreographic, one being sound-oriented, but they just happen at the same time. So when the performances happen, and I've, I'm just actually just finishing a, a book by Carolyn Brown, who was one of the dancers in the Cunningham Company, the most fantastic book, I really recommend it. But she reveals all the stories of the 20 years she works with these guys and how often they had no idea till the night of the performance what music would be heard for the performance, which in itself is extraordinary because I work with, uh, with choreographers a lot and it's often very, very organised. It's very, very rehearsed. These two characters were much more playful and exploratory in their approach. But it brings up an idea of, of, of time very much so. When is something finished? When does it start? The piece I made with Cunningham, I performed, was called Event. And what happened with that is there's a start, there's a finish, i.e. the piece is 75 minutes long. And we were told that within that piece, we can take a five-minute break. But you can take that as five one-minute breaks or 30-second breaks as long as you take five minutes. So the chances are that the two or three or four musicians who are making the work to this live dance piece, you could all at the same time choose your five-minute break. So you have five minutes of silence, which doesn't actually matter. It doesn't happen like that. But it's those chance ideas that I found really, really inspiring. In our early conversations, these were ideas we were all very enthusiastic about, still without actually knowing <laughs> what on earth we were really doing, of course. That's the funny thing. Absolutely. I was just going to say, Ruth mentioned that prior to teaming up with Robin on this project, we had collaborated with a number of other artists. And um, these were mainly one sort or another of visual artists. I'm just going to give you a little run through of these. So the first one we did was this project, Venus. Uh, a copper-covered house in which we worked with um, an artist making an installation piece out of fluid and glass, a photographer and an, uh, another artist uh, making a time-lapse uh, record of the construction work, um, Frank Watson, Matt Hale, Graham Cooper. Um, and these, those works were incorporated in, in the building. Um, also, this project, Cargo Fleet, which is a rusty steel or Corten steel um, project whose uh, derivation was originally influenced by the industrial architecture of northeast England, which is two connected houses in uh, North London. And on that, we worked with a glass artist called Kirsty Brooks, who again, taking from the same imagery source, made an etched glass screen for the staircase, which uh, manages the privacy and lets light in. 
Uh, we also worked with filmmakers called Mash Mosh um, and dancers from the Royal Ballet who uh, performed a choreography in a building of ours called Casa Dancer and that was later made into a film installation in the same project. That's this building here. And as well as that, we have designed um, a building for music, which is a music studio for string quartet, uh, for teaching uh, practice and small performances of string players. And the first time that we actually, Robin and, uh, and Wendy and I, were able to put our collaboration into, a, into an actual, into production in a form was in 2014, we were invited to participate in the Venice Architectural Biennale in, uh, appropriately enough, uh, an exhibition called Time, Space and Existence. And um, what, what um, that was that um, we, were, we, we took over the derelict staircase in a kind of, not exactly ruined, but a rundown palazzo in Venice. And um, we made... Um, a kind of a prototype of the formwork, which in due course we were thinking we would use in the, the casting of the concrete for the building Vex in London. And Robin um, made a, a, a sort of looping three-minute piece um, for that, and people came in, wandered in and out of the staircase, wandered in and out of the staircase in the palazzo, and had a, um, an experience of the installation in the space and the sound. And in fact, this piece had elements of vexations or vexation. Has lots of space in it, so. <laughs> uh, Anna Robin, of course, as, as Rue mentioned earlier, has made a number, I don't know, many installations. Quite a lot. To carry yeah. on. I'll press the button. You'd you, you be my button pressing man. Yeah, I'll press your <laughs> buttons, Robin. Uh, this is getting embarrassing. So, uh, this is, in fact, the, the, the project that uh, Ruth alluded to at the beginning, uh, Saladid Apart, which is actually a morgue in a hospital. One of the strangest projects I've probably worked on and one of the most poignant, and if it's anything I'm, if I, you know, once I'm, I slip away, I think it's the one project I would be the, the proudest of. It's interesting when you make work because often we speak of an audience as well and I think that's a, 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 a very interesting uh, uh, aspect of, of, of making public work, be it a building, publishing a book or whatever it may be. When you make work in this sense, this is a working morgue in a working hospital. There is no audience to speak of. I was invited by the architect, Dottori Spalletti, who finished the project, the architecture, the shape, the, the, uh, the shall I press the button? I, I can do this. Yeah, yeah. you can yeah. play the sound. And uh, not yet. Uh, so Spalletti invited me. He said, look, I've, I've designed this space, but it's not finished until it has sound. So would you consider making sound, which was a huge challenge. It, spent, it took about a year of my time to consider what would work in a space like this. Now, now remember, this is a hospital that deals in... Uh, I'll do this, you can get it's clever. Uh, uh, that deals in, not in long-term illness, but deals in sudden deaths. It deals in people who've died in a car accident, or those that were at home one night, just 
doing something and fell down the steps and broke their neck. It's awful. So this is where you spend the last 20 minutes with a loved one. So it's a very, very in, in important location. And, uh, and so as you can see here, there are these three plinths set up. That's where you can actually identify up to three bodies and spend the last 20 minutes with someone. So there is no audience to speak of. Nobody wants to be in this place. From bitter, horrible life experience, I've spent too many hours in places like this. In the last three or four years, I've been in these places twice to be with family. And they're not pleasant. When my mother died, interestingly, all the sounds were taken away. We had to switch off life support. So you lose all those mechanical sounds. and You're suddenly in a, in a, in a, in a, a relatively quiet space in a, in a hospital. And what they do here, which is remarkable, is they finally give you a radio, which they tune to something like Happy FM. And it plays things like Rod Stewart constantly. So to this day, if I hear a Rod Stewart song, maybe some of you feel the same already, it brings tears to my eyes. Uh, but it's, it's remarkable that you know, sound plays such a prominent role. So the important thing with this is translating sound dead apart to English is a kind of departure lounge. And the, the pathologist in the hospital firmly believed that the most important thing you can do is bid farewell to somebody in a positive way. So the sound, in a sense, is a bit like a uh, paint. I'm, playing it, I'm going to play it rather loudly here. But it's, it's more like a texture. The, the volume of the piece is such that if it was switched off, you would realize that it had been playing. It collages together voices, very naturalistic sounds, all environmental sounds, and a small piece of piano music later on. Because you can't speak of an audience. You don't know who these people are. You don't know whether it's a three-year-old child that died or you don't know whether it's a 70-year-old grandmother or something. So it's a, it's a very tricky situation to deal with. It's a permanent thing. It's been there now since 2002. It runs every day. Uh, incredibly challenging project. Shall we? We can move on here, Steve. So this is a, a piece I made for... i just leave this running gently in the background. This is a piece I made uh, for a hospital for in the UK for people with spinal injuries. It's a swimming pool with a kind of ambient lighting system that changes according to the sound. And there's a, a, a soundtrack that plays for people. The idea being that if you want to, you can switch my music off and play Robbie Williams or Frank Sinatra, if you want to, if that helps you. But the idea was to, to, to help people with the various frequencies, the various explorations of sound that can assist you in a process of healing within the water. It was uh, quite a successful piece in, in, in what it needed to do. Uh, to this day, I don't know how it's still operating, but presumably <laughs> one, these things still continue in a, in a public hospital. But it, again, it's, it's a public piece that looks at time, that looks at space, and sees how it can actually operate in a... In a not that I make all my work in hospitals, by the way. I do lots of other projects, but it seems that I spend an inordinate amount of time helping other people. <laughs> what, a, what a positive thing. Right. So, and f Yes. Uh, and this is a Rijeka Airport. I have a, a permanent piece in the uh, departure lounge in Rijeka Airport in Croatia. And this is a kind of interesting one because the piece runs for about eight hours in a loop. And it's a combination of recordings of water in the area along with recordings of local musicians. And the local scale is a very strange scale. If you're familiar with the Istrian scale, it goes something like... And it's, it feels like somebody did something very badly wrong. And you play in duet. So you see these two, often two guys playing towards one another very close. And suddenly there's this comedy moment the first time you hear it. And it goes on and you 
soon adjust to it. It exists in the departure lounge, ironically. So uh, it's a place where people don't know about time anymore with planes. It could be delayed by four or five hours. So it, it repeats, but it doesn't follow a pattern. It's, it has a timeless quality about it. So if you get stranded at Rijeka Airport, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to um, just tell you something about the building project itself, VEX. Um, so speeding up slightly, this is the completed project in context. It, uh, it started as a small site um, between the rendered building on the left and the tree on the right, and it contained a number of derelict garages, three derelict garages with fly tip tipping. Um, as we said before, certain ideas from uh, Satis Vexation, which both of us took as a kind of uh, reference to some of the ideas we put into the pieces to start with, um, we particularly took from that the, the kind of uh, spiraling, looping nature of the piece, um, some of the ambiguities, so not necessarily transferring direct musical ideas, but the playfulness and the ambiguity uh, and some of the austere qualities of vexations. And the building was entirely cast of in situ concrete, cast against corrugated metal to give a fluted or corrugated external um, quality. And, and actually, people new to the building often don't know what, it, what it's made of. Um, in uh, a reference back to John Cage and Merce Cunningham's um, chance procedures, we, in an early stage of the project, literally took the printed out sheet music from Satie's Vexations and wrapped a primitive, very primitive model of the building in the sheet music and we punctured holes through where the score, the bass motif of them, went into the building as the very first uh, layout of the building positions and sizes within the building to introduce this kind of chance or random element. And you can see here under construction, the random building sizes and shapes, positions. Very properly, being architects, we also took account of the orientation, the passage of the sun, the privacy of neighbours and the views up and down the street and incorporated adjustments into the, into the original uh, premise of the chance manoeuvre. Um, the building was made as a kind of hybrid of high-tech construction, 3D modelling and CNC cut templates with very, very skillful on-site carpentry. So all the formwork was made like this um, by two brilliant carpenters and there's a lot of heavy labour involved in lifting everything into place. And then when the wrapper, and we poured one whole floor at a time, which was very, very scary, we peeled off the, uh, the corrugated steel. And, and during this construction process, uh, my partner, Wendy, was below decks checking that none of the concrete was leaking into the building and all the wet, wet concrete was rattling down into the, into the shell of the building. And she made a brief... Um, video on her phone and she sent the sound file to Robin. Robin made the first of his pieces Vex Flow using the raw material of the sound um, of the making of the building. Which was in F sharp, F -sharp. which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> um, one of the things we talked about at one stage was if you're going to make, a, as Ruth alluded to, a permanent installation into a building that you have to live with, what kind of music could that be? You've got the raw concrete noise. What would you, could you possibly put up with as the background to living? And a couple of examples of composers who made very long pieces. I'm just going to play a couple of excerpts Just a here. couple of examples, yes. Morton Feldman. Uh, 
Feldman's late pieces could last four and a half hours, five hours, five and a half hours. Which, which is short compared to the next example we're going to play. That's true. Jem Fine, a long player, which plays for 1,000 years. <laughs> Still playing somewhere now. As we speak. You can as get well an app. Here. You can get an app and listen to it live, actually. Yeah. And uh, a more recent one, which is a Brian Eno's Reflection. Well, this is an app. Yeah. Or, or endlessly... But this is kind of like a constantly regenerating piece. Yeah, so I've got a couple of different CD versions of it, which are actually... Not that different, obviously, but they follow quite different structures at times. But these were good precedents for what we were considering at the time about a piece that looks at timelessness. How does a piece start? How does a piece finish? How do, how do you, where, do, where do you begin with something that's going to live in a, in a building for always? You know, what does somebody want? Robin makes his music using an old telephone exchange. <laughs> uh, do you want to play... Flow, we'll just yeah, let's do that. So, these are some very beautiful construction shots taken by the photographer Ellen Binet during the works. So, the, there are two pieces, Flow and Drift, and actually they can both play together. Tonally, they work together. So, this just goes in a very long loop against the other piece, which also goes in a very long loop. And because we're a bit short of time, I'm going to go straight on to the completion images. Because at the end, so this is the piece Drift. I should maybe say that the building contains. A ground floor studio, first floor sleeping space, and a top floor living dining space, and a little sky garden on the roof. So, just to bring it to a conclusion, architecture and music are both immersive experiences that um, are experienced in space and over time. And in one sense, uh, music is the capturing of time within architectural space. Um, but when you bring these two things together, you never quite know what's going to happen because you don't, you're, you're experiencing space and time through the emotions as well, particularly with the addition of music. And there's a potentially unpredictable interaction between these two, and that's part of the interest of exploring what we did. Um, so that's the end of our talk. Um, and Robin it was just something I wanted to play you very quickly, which is just over uh, as the encore because you were clapping so loudly. So uh, it's uh, about one and a half minutes long. And essentially what I did was something uh, that was written in 1970 by Alvin Lussier called I Am Sitting in a Room. If you're familiar with this piece, it's a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, I don't need to talk too much long about Lussier, but essentially it's a piece with, with him reading his voice into a room and it he re-records it constantly. So you read something, it plays into the room, you record it, you play it back over and over again. So the resonant frequencies of the room, in a sense, start to take over. So I took the piece of Vexed, played it in the house, recorded it, played it back into the house, and after just 10 repeats, it disappeared. So let me just play you how it starts and how it finishes. Which was in this room, the ground floor studio, which is one of the harder spaces.
with just 10 repeats, it's almost disappeared. <coughs> something I like because in a way it felt like this was the building suddenly absorbing the sound I'd made so in fact it was the building making the work for me and in some sense I felt like this should actually have been the installation another chart topping hit thank you thanks very much Um, I'd just like to um, invite to the platform now as well Carol, our first speaker, but also Emma Kate Matthews and Sandra Hoskins, who have been organising this evening's event. Um, and we will just hear some short responses from, from them, and then we'll open up the floor to you for questions. Thank you. Should I start? Mm -hmm. um, to use the yeah, sure. Is that okay? So, <coughs> Rui in the beginning said that what we try to do today is actually make time noticeable and palpable and visible and audible. And I think that both presentations have really done that. Um, and it seems, what I found interesting is that the works that all three of you presented um, goes beyond the sense of time, uh, goes beyond the sense of time that has these concrete beginnings and ends. Um, and I find that really exciting, and as well as encouraging. Uh, oh, is that not working? Hello? Okay. Um, so, in that respect, I think both presentations work really nicely uh, along one another. Um, and I think there's a specific shared interest uh, in the repetition as a tool um, to point towards the passing of time. Um, for example, Carol, in your film, I notice how you're building up your kind of tender understanding of blue and grey and the fairy tale by coming back to the phrases, um, by reiterating the phrases, but also along the way slightly altering them. Mm -hmm. So you have this, the O returns, um, as well as um, there's a return to the room. Um, and um, the characters, they are um, unconcerned but not indifferent. So there's this repetition uh, within your film. Um, and it, it seems to, for me, exist by the grace of these subtle, um, but sometimes unnoticeable differences. Um, and um, for Vex, as well as for actually the, um, the project you did at the airport in Croatia, um, this seems to almost be a bit more of a literal phenomenon, the repetition as a tool to construct, construct a sense of time. But then in both, actually, all the projects that you presented, as well as how you like, perceive the color gray, it doesn't have a pattern. It doesn't necessarily lead somewhere. So there's the repetition, but it's still open-ended. And so I was really wondering if you could perhaps expand upon your conception or your understanding of the notion of the repetition or as a, as a design tool um, and how it informs your working methods and your thinking about temporality in relation to space, um, in relation to um, design of, of, of music pieces or, in your case, in the process of writing and um, making audible uh, a fairy tale. I don't know who would like to start. I can say something quickly there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's interesting that popular music is simply based on repetition. The idea of success with 
popular music in a, in a genre is about the simple idea of repetition. That's why it works, because it just hammers this thing away. You know, the, there are many accounts of... I, I love the story of Cage when somebody said it's, it's this piece that he was performing was very boring. He said, yes, but you have to keep listening to it many times and it won't be so boring after all. When you've listened to something beyond the point of boredom, then it starts to become interesting. For my, for my own work, you know, when I consider these works, for example, the piece in Rijeka Airport, it's, it's, you always have to consider who, who are the, in inverted commas, the consumers, who are the listeners for this piece. They do not want to be sitting in a lounge, stranded for four hours with this piece that's just hammering away, because I certainly know that they had a bar there that was just playing Beatles tunes on loops. And that was numbing. But whether you're the biggest Beatles fan in the world, it wasn't very engaging. After a while, you'd want to go crazy, you know. So, you know, I, I made a piece that, again, it's, it's at a volume that if it's not there, you think, oh, it switched off. And that's what I like with those kind of works. It's a little bit like here we hear a hum from an amplifier. I can hear it from here from the speaker. Once that's switched off or a projector, you suddenly realise, oh, the projector was switched off. You know, it's once you draw someone's attention to those things. And to me, that's what I, I love with those, those works. So uh, repetition, repetition is important, but for many of those things, there's never any sense of a loop. That's what, what I like about it. I try to make works so where you can't, you can't find the one, so to speak. You don't know quite where it started. It just, it's continuous. I think the other thing about... Um Repetition is things are not the same when they come back. I mean, even if theoretically it's exactly the same thing repeated, when you hear it again and again and again, it's not the same. Um, and although in the case of the building, um, we were aware that, that Sarti's uh, piece was set up to repeat what we took from the building, it was this idea that if you, if you move around the building in the loop, nothing will be the same and we deliberately set out that you wouldn't have the experience of going up the stairs and being in the same kind of space on every floor but to actually move you through the building um, so that your experience is, is, is varied because of the looping of the space and obviously in VEX as you move from floor to floor in different parts of the building you're also getting the sound altering as you go. One thing that really I'm interested in with repetition is the relationship between text and image. So if you're repeating the same text with a different image or repeating the image with a different text in the way that I'd like to think that that begins to make meaning or that uh, the images start speaking to the text and the text to the image. Um, I use a, a lot of repetition, I think, partly because of the kind of literature I'm interested in reading, especially someone like Marguerite de Ross. So her book, The Ravishing of Lil Wiestein, had a big effect on me because when you're reading it, uh, I sometimes didn't know whether I had read that passage before. She was repeating herself, so it really um, undoes time um, in that particular way. I think I repeat but I make circles all the time so I guess it's a different kind um, of looping so I like to come back to the beginning um, and I'm very interested in this idea of middleness that there of course there is no place to begin there's no such thing where would beginning of anything be so we have to start in the middle and then um, toying um, with that particular idea. 
Um, so I've got a question now, which is, I suppose, maybe tailored more towards uh, Steve and Scanner. But I was, I was particularly interested when you started talking about the Salle de Parts project, um, and you said that the architecture is not complete until the music is part of it. And something that I'm personally very interested in is the idea that um, a space can complete a piece of music, sort of the, the opposite of that. And then sort of going back to your um, reference to Lucia and what you, you did with the, the VEX project and your, the sounds that you um, prepared for that project that you then played back into the space repeatedly until it sort of disappeared, which was absolutely fascinating and wonderful. Um, I'm just wondering how, how do you think it might change if you were to use rather than recorded sound that sort of iteratively changes with each recording, if you were to use, um, say, live improvising musicians um, and, and if it would be possible with each repetition for the musicians to sort of learn the acoustic of the space or learn the acoustic potential of the space, the sort of... As, as I often sort of refer to this as a, an acoustic opinion. It's a, yeah, it's interesting because we'd spoken, we'd had a conversation about performance within the house, but it's an idea I've been interested in for ages, which is about also how we remember things. I've done a number of projects where I wrote a piece for a brass band, and it could only be performed once, and they performed it to a string quartet, and the string quartet then had to remember that piece and perform it the following week to a local rock band, and it went on over a series of weeks. There's a film actually online called Witness, and the idea was about witnessing something, and I still like the idea of, of kind of repeating this exploration, the idea that we had a series, we could have a series of musicians in a space in the house who play, people witness it, and then they have to perform it. So it constantly changes. And for me, it's, it's a little bit like the way our memory works. We always slightly remember things differently. We can all see the same instant and then describe it afterwards, and we all have our own interpretations or readings of it. I mean, uh, that, that sort of reflects back on uh, the comment, the relatively playful comment about, about me saying I don't like CDs. I have a massive CD collection. I buy lots of records. I buy lots of permanent things because I want to repeat them. I want to listen to them. And yet, at the same time, I want things to constantly change. But they do constantly change because I've learned so much. So every time I re return to a piece of music, I've learned a lot since I last heard that piece of music. So I'm offering it a lot more back as well. It is it does keep living the same way with books. You can reread a book that you read 10 years ago or five years ago, and you've, you know so much more now, you can inform yourself with it and retune that relationship. I'll pass over until I get too abstract. I think the other thing is, uh, I mean, buildings, as I was saying in, in the talk, are really assumed to be static and permanent. So an obvious thing about them is that they change. Not They don't just literally change because they they get rained on and they get dirty. Um, they change because the perception of them changes with the culture. So for example, you know, at the moment, concrete buildings happen to be quite in, but for a long time, they were vilified. And as well as that, um, that's, you know, a piece of music like, say, green sleeves has been around longer than most of London because most of it burned down in the Great Fire. So the sense of permanence for buildings and permanence for music comp constantly shifting between the two and, uh, and, and altering over time. I, I would like to ask you about the color gray, if that's okay. Um, you say that blue can effortlessly, effortlessly become gray. Um, and it makes me wonder how you write, and also in your, in your film, talk about the color blue. Mm -hmm. It's a color of memories. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very time-specific color in some sense. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Um, whereas grey is this timeless colour. It, it, it is this legete time, um, mm -hmm. you say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I want to say yeah. it's without time, which without I time. think is different than timeless. Yeah. Could you m maybe say what, what you mean by that exactly? Well, I don't have, maybe. I don't know how many of, have you seen the film La Jete? It goes, it goes so well with your architecture, I think. But the, there's a sense that you're, it's, well, I love that in the middle, where they say, you know, we're without memories, without plans. It seems to me to be without time rather than in another kind of time. I forget what you said. With no, that's all right. Yeah. Um, my, my question was really, like, with taking that, in, that into account, mm -hmm. could the color gray even become a fairy tale, a film, a book, or is that something that actually should exist in the middle of things as a short presentation in between blue and in between other temporalities? I don't know. I think that's. I think that's. I think that's a really good question because I just started thinking about gray because, as I hope you understood with my presentation, I made that blue collage before I wrote Blue Mythology. I didn't know what I was doing and where I was going, and I was trying to put a utopian twist on it that it was a kind of sketch in order mm -hmm. to think about things. So now I've started. So I didn't want to talk about blue anymore yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah but I wanted to show the film and talk about it. And that made me think um, a lot about gray. And, uh, but it might ruin it, I don't know, to make it something longer. But I am definitely writing about different kinds of objects now that are more austere, um, more modern. I'm looking at a lot of like American mid-century photography. So I, I don't know, it must be me getting old because like my aesthetic has, has really changed um, and I'm interested in that kind of austerity now. So I'm definitely writing a gray book now, but it's not necessarily about the color gray. <laughs> but Thank I always you. want to invert things, you know, gray yes. so it doesn't have a great reputation. <laughs> <laughs> You know, concrete is cool now. You know, you can turn these things concrete around. Is great. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I want to think about that, and also I think so many of us um, have older parents or grandparents now that have Alzheimer's, and I want to also, with that, try to think about memory differently rather than just trying to get recover it and make people remember yeah. to think about different ways of memory and different ways of brain. Okay, thank you. Um, we'd like to open it up to the. Audience, do you, anyone have any questions? We've got two mics here. Thank you. Hi. Um, can I just ask, you did, because you didn't explain in your talk, how the music is actually delivered throughout the building and whether the experience of the music is different if you're standing in a different part of the building? Um, and also, so sound that's uh, overlaid, obviously just by virtue of living within the building. Is the intention that the... the um, because to me, what you were playing made it sound as if the building was alive, you know, as if it hummed like a living thing. Um, so if you're playing other music or there's some other event going on, what would be your intention for how the sound would be experienced? inside the house. Do you want to go first or shall I? You say, yeah. <laughs> One of the interesting things I found in the house is that um, 
So I, I can answer the simple questions first. Um, yeah, it varies a lot, even just moving around, because all the spaces uh, are curved, and because the radii vary all the time, you come across hot spots. So it's the opposite of what you probably want to produce in a concert hall. You suddenly get loud moments, and you've become aware of the sound. Um, something that's playing all the time, um, unless you play it very loud, you acclimatize to it until you forget that it's there. And actually, when it is switched off, or has been switched off, I still think it's playing when I walk around, because there is this residual sound. And I think, damn, I've left it, I've left it on, you know, in the bedroom or something. And it's actually just there, sounds leaking in of the city and moving around the space. Um, and depending, you know, some people will come and go, and they won't even notice it's there. And others will be straight away thinking, you know, what's that? So it's very different. I, I also think it's a little bit like when people live next to a railway line and you go there and think, how on earth can you live here? But you just adjust to it. It's just there. It's also important to remember there is an off button. You know, it's not, it's not forced upon you in that sense. I think, you know, if somebody really doesn't like it, it's not like they have to sign a contract. You can never hit the off button, you know. You have to disconnect all the wiring in the house to switch this off. It doesn't quite... It's not like when I've stayed in hotels in America and it's, the air conditioning is so high and I had to get an engineer into my hotel room in Washington to disconnect it. It was just ridiculous. It was so cold. You don't need to do that. You can switch it off. But what I like is the idea of people embracing... I think, you know, it, it's as simple as... People listen to music on the move a lot today. On, I'm struck when people on the underground are listening on little earbuds. I think, I, I never wear headphones when I'm out. And when you do wear them, you're also hearing everything around you. But you're focusing on the kind of interior sometimes. Sometimes you're focusing on the exterior. And as humans, we're very good at adjusting to that. So I'd like to believe, optimistically as well, that people can happily live with it. It won't give them too many nightmares. And... You know, it, it's something very unique to embrace in that sense, I feel. You know, it's, a, it's such an opportunity, it's such a rare opportunity that I would say go for it rather than try and switch it off. Thanks to all the speakers. That was a um, super interesting talk. I have a question for Carol. Um, you speak in Blue Mythologies a lot about metaphor and metonymy. Your talk was full of metaphor, grey is the moon, grey is no time. And I was just wondering... Um, what relationship perhaps the colour grey might have to the idea of the metaphor and what relationship the metaphor has to time? I was thinking of, um, <laughs> I was thinking of um, when you write about um, metaphor as expansion and whether that has a relationship yeah, I, to time. I think that's such a good question because I was thinking what would be um, metonymic with the colour grey and I want to say... It's not there because um, just as I was saying, you wouldn't find gray usually in fairy tales. You know, there might be a, a castle made of stone, but it, it doesn't make the story move along. It doesn't hold um, a place. And because I agree with um, Jacques Lacan that metonymy is, you know, it's a kind of displacement. It's a desire for something else. And I, I feel like gray doesn't have those kinds of hard edges or that, that place that it could be metonymic. I think that's brilliant. I think that's really interesting to think about because when I think about colors, you either, that's, you're generalizing. I don't want to say, you know, every 
thing is true that I say about blue, but I think the fact that blue becomes, that it does operate between metaphor and metonymy um, in terms of that it's very contradictory and that's part of the color and that it's the color of happiness and it's the color of sadness. It, it seems to work a lot on oppositions, which I think gray doesn't because it, it's really not really a color in, in the same way. Does that answer? Does that answer your question? So it seems, I don't want to say it's, I, I'm just figuring this out, and maybe you people can tell me something more. It doesn't, we, does, it doesn't seem to, it seems exciting and beautiful, not exciting, it seems, gray seems beautiful, but it doesn't seem to have desire in it. So, so, so what is that in gray? Okay. I wondered about whether your sound for the swimming pool, um, whether that was played inside the water, or outside? Outside. Um, outside, okay. Merely for practical reasons, actually. Yeah, ah, I mean, I, I had to learn about things like IP ratings of speakers and moisture and all the dangerous things that swimming pools create. And my other question was related to how you locate your sound within the space in relationship to how you would like or how you imagine the body receives the sound. It was, for something like that, it felt quite important that uh, it could be played at a volume such that actually the, the, the speakers are situated so actually you can feel it within the frame of the water. They're not under the water, but there's a, a kind of a subwoofer, that's what it's called. I was trying to think of the technical term. So the frequencies actually, the lower frequencies move through the water. It, it was both a physical and a mental approach because there are many reports that sound is very positive towards people healing. And I did a lot of research towards certain frequencies that would help the body, these kinds of things. So the piece is a very gentle piece, but a very low frequency piece. In fact, I played a version of it once at a place called The Spitz, which was in Spitterfield's Market before it got really trendy. And it's now like a very expensive bar and restaurant. I played a show there with a, with a version of this. And it was, it was very loud, but you and I could still talk over it because it was using very low frequencies. And a pregnant woman came up to me very upset and said, it's really upsetting my tummy and my baby. I don't like this at all. And I hadn't taken into account how actually dangerous, not dangerous, but how unsettling that could be for some people. And uh, it, it was interesting to, to consider how in the space those frequencies will transfer through the water. I mean, there are stories, if you, if you know that sound travels underwater very, very fast. It's incredible, the difference between outside and underneath. And... You know, creatures can communicate so much faster under the under the water, but uh, it's it, it's it's a simple piece in many ways. You know, I wanted it to be seductive at the same time. I wanted it to bring people to that space because they want to be there and they enjoy the feeling of it in, in itself, which felt quite important. Uh, that's kind of all I can say about it. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you for the uh, talks from our speakers, and thank you for your questions. Um, if you'd now like to join us in the library space, um, we have an exhibition of films by Sander and a performance of a piece that I've written uh, called Device 2, which I'll say a few words about before we begin. But please uh, grab a drink and uh, wait a few minutes. And We wanted to say one small thing. As if, you, if you wanted to try the CD in your own home <laughs> to see if it really annoys you, we actually had some with a kind of donation kind box here, so at the front. If, well, we'll take them outside, but if you wanted to test it out, those frequencies in your own home, it is available. We'll put them in the library. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.